0: So to start off the new year, we are doing a series of messages on suffering and last week we introduced a tension that we all may feel in life, the tension between um, a desire to alleviate suffering and a desire to embrace suffering, alleviate and embrace, longing to bring about change and longing to radically accept what has taken place or what is taking place, to find a solution and to sit with the pain. And while one of those may be stressed more than the other by popular culture or the groups that we're a part of, a full life and a realistic life has both, alleviate suffering and embrace suffering. We see this tension navigated in really helpful ways through the life of Jesus, who is the synthesis, the bringing together of embracing and alleviating. And navigating this tension is a helpful reminder that our identity is not our suffering, nor is it removed from our suffering. This weekend, we thought it would be the perfect opportunity to look at the work and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., especially through the ways that he engaged with suffering in his speeches and sermons and prayers. In a few moments, we will have the chance to listen to some of King's words, but I wanted to briefly talk about the beauty of his ability to present both embracing and alleviating suffering as necessary. I typically revisit a letter from a Birmingham jail each year around this time. It's a letter that Dr. King wrote while imprisoned after participating in nonviolent demonstrations against segregation. In it, King is responding to the criticism of white clergy members who have deemed his approach unwise and untimely. He talks about his disappointment with the white moderate and his disappointment with the white church. And throughout the letter, King talks about this dangerous and unhelpful call to wait. In the face of injustice, wait. A call that comes from the white clergy and the white moderate. Be patient for progress. Now is not the time. King says that wait has almost always meant never when it comes to the oppressor offering up freedom to the oppressed. Liberation cannot wait. We must take direct and nonviolent action now. This is a call to alleviate suffering. Dr. King writes that our lives are inextricably tied together. Whatever affects one affects all. Our suffering is as tied as our liberation. The immediacy of his call is not placing hope only in some far off freedom, but the possibility of freedom now. He says the urge for freedom will eventually come. We need to alleviate suffering. At the same time, Dr. King's prayers and speeches also offer a sustaining hope in the face of present injustice. He has messages of comfort for right now. He prays for an inward acceptance of personal shortcomings as well as perseverance in external circumstances. He prays to be aware of his inadequacies. He prays asking for mercy, asking for strength. He prays confessing the weaknesses of our lives. He says we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. We must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. This is embrace suffering language. Dr. King's words read and sound so powerful for many reasons, but this year I'm especially struck by his ability to weave together this alleviating suffering with embracing suffering. I'm moved by his willingness to both challenge and comfort. And he looks to the image of God to guide his understanding in doing so. We talked last week about Jesus as the synthesis of alleviating and embracing. Similarly, Dr. King talks about the creative synthesis found in a God of justice, a God that has what he calls both a tough mind and a tender heart. In one of his sermons, he says that God is tough-minded to transcend the world and tender-hearted enough to be in it. He leaves us not alone in our agonies and struggles. He seeks us in dark places and suffers with us. The balance of alleviating and embracing comes together in the way that Jesus suffers with us. The closeness of a tender-hearted Christ that Dr. King presents as a fellow sufferer and a partner in bringing about justice. Now, we are going to spend some time today doing something that's a little bit different than normal. We're going to have some space for discussion. So we are going to listen to some excerpts from Dr. King's speeches and then respond to his words through discussion time. So if you are in the theater today, we will have some group leaders ready to lead discussion. Vince is going to help um, people in just a moment here kind of get settled into groups and in different spots in the theater. If you are joining online and would like an option for um, a video option for discussion, you can actually do that on Discord. Uh, There is, under meeting rooms on the app, there is uh, one labeled small group room one And Alicia, who's our moderator for today, will be there leading the discussion there. You can also, if you're joining from home, just chat with the people that you are tuning in with. And we will use Discord, the chat feature, as kind of the collecting space for all of our reflections today. So if you're joining and you just want to chat with the people that you're in the room with from home, you can put your answers in Discord. And even if you are in a small group in the theater, we'd love for there to be kind of a scribe for your group who puts your answers, your reflections, In Discord as well. So, does anyone have any questions in the room about how this will work? I don't have Discord pulled up in front of me right now. So, if you have questions online, Alicia can help out there. Um, But, does anyone have questions before we kind of invite you to get uncomfortable and move around in just a moment? All right, so we will start the first clip if everyone wants to get settled and we can join in listening to this clip from Beyond Vietnam.
1: I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society, when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so the men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out no, no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our line with, with the landed gentrification of South America and say this is not just. Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay a hand on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just, this business of burning human beings with napalm, filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of people's nominating, sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death.
0: All right, we are going to listen to the next clip now. Um, it'll be the same discussion questions afterwards, and so now you've already got those in your brain, but this is a clip from Nonviolence and Social Change.
2: Of course, by now it's obvious that new laws are not enough. The emergency we now face is economic, and it is a desperate and worsening situation. For the 35 million poor people in America, not even to mention just yet the poor in the other nations, that is a kind of strangulation in the air. In our society, it's murder psychologically to deprive a man of a job or an income. You are in substance saying to that man that he has no right to exist you are in a real way depriving him of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, denying, in his case, the very creed of his society. Now millions of people are being strangled that way. The problem is at least national. In fact, it's international in scope. And it is getting worse as the gap between the poor and the affluent society increases. I intend to show that nonviolence will be effective, but not until it has achieved the massive dimensions, the disciplined planning, and the intense commitment of a sustained direct action movement of civil disobedience on the national scale. The dispossessed of this nation, the poor, both white and Negro, live in a cruelly unjust society. They must organize a revolution against that injustice, not against the life of the persons who are their fellow citizens, but against the structures through which the society is refusing to take means which have been called for and which are at hand to lift the load of poverty. The only real revolutionary, people say, is a man who has nothing to lose. There are millions of poor people in this country who have very little or even nothing to lose. They can be helped to take action together. They will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life.
3: Okay. That was good. We had some good discussions here in the theater and uh, hopefully, with whoever you're watching with, um, you had some good discussions. Um, one last, uh, we wanted to end on a practical note, um, and this is gonna specifically apply to those uh, who are in, who, uh, who live in Chicago, but it will, uh, it can uh, apply beyond that. If you're, if you're somebody who uh, is local, but you don't live in the city, this is still, c- uh, could be important for you to know, or uh, perhaps, uh, if you're joining from afar, you can, um, this can help kind of inspire you as you think about your own city. So, there, um, this last uh, this last speech that we listened to is about helping the poor gain power, and uh, one of the major 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 ways that we're thinking about how to do that. Um, right now in Chicago, and not just not just us. Like like I, I think I want our church to be involved in that. But broader is housing insecurity. There's lots of creative conversations around housing insecurity, and there's a key one that's going on right now, um, which has been uh, an organizing effort in Chicago over the past decade called Bring Chicago Home. We mentioned this uh, several weeks ago. We'll mention it again actually as we get closer to March because there's an important deadline coming up. This decade-long effort. Uh, bring Chicago home. The goal is to get a dedicated fund to address housing insecurity in Chicago, not just making it where it's like something that has to be clawed for at every budget meeting every year to, how, what are we going to spend on the homeless? Oh, okay, let's, you know, let's talk that out and stack it up against all of the other things that want money uh, for the year. So this is a, it's about getting a dedicated fund for addressing housing insecurity. Uh, and on March nineteenth, which is the the primary ballot in Chicago,' it's the next the the, the next uh, uh, election you might vote in, primaries, um, uh, bring Chicago home has succeeded in getting a referendum on this ballot. and the the referendum is going to ask yes or no. It's the only referendum on the ballot. And uh, if uh, a yes vote, what it will do is make a change to the real estate transfer tax. Ooh, right? You're supposed to say, huh, tell me more events. This is so boring. But any, any sale over... Oh, thank you. Yes, I, w- I would love to tell you more. Uh, the real estate transfer tax happens when somebody buys or sells property, real estate, okay? And, um, and normally a buyer will have to pay a transfer tax. It's a one-time tax. It's not something that continues, but it's, like it, it gets a little, it, it's one of the ways that, um, that uh, money gets to the government. And uh, what Bring Chicago Home developed was this plan to say any sale of real estate over $1 million dollars... In Chicago, that will be taxed at a higher rate there they, that's like a graduated rate where if it gets even more over a million then it's even more of a percentage and anything above any a money that's taken in above that one million dollar transfer tax rate that would go to fund um, uh, addressing uh, housing insecurity so all of that money would go now this uh, the transfer tax rate for sales under one million dollars so any Sale of real estate, under a million dollars, is actually going to go down according to this plan. And so it, this is actually good for middle class people. Um, and comparatively, uh, because this has been called the mansion tax uh, 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 for some people, the mansion tax, uh, what this will make it in Chicago, is actually still a bargain compared to cities like Philadelphia and New York. So it's it, it really like... If 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 rich people or 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 businesses that are you know buying multi-million dollar commercial buildings are upset, you know you're still getting a bargain here in Chicago. Um, but this is not well known about. Okay, this 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 effort and primary elections are like historically low turnout. I think the the uh, the 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 uh, um, estimations is like twenty percent of registered voters are going to show up for March nineteenth. But March 19th has the chance to decide something huge. So you may not care about the primaries. I'm not going to argue with you if you don't care about the primaries. But I think you care about this. And I think a lot of people we know care about this. So the encouragement is, let's put the March 19th uh, primaries on people's radars because this matters a dedicated fund to addressing housing insecurity it doesn't have to be fought for every year after year after year this this will actually put money they say it's going to raise um over the course of a few years a hundred million dollars to address housing insecurity so this is a this is a long-term solution um 51 yeses it 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 it's law and, and that's how we fund housing insecurity. This would uh, make Chicago. Uh, it would put us more in line with places like L.A. or New York, who have dedicated funds. Chicago does not have a dedicated fund, but we need one. So, putting it on our radar. What's the date? March 19th, Yes. Okay. We're going to spread the word. If you're not in Chicago, if you don't live in Chicago, if you can't vote in Chicago, you can still spread the word. This is super important. Um, all right. That's what I wanted to mention as a practical thing that we can uh, that we can do. Uh, we wanted to uh, close. We'll we'll uh, have our usual time to just connect and and commune over the communion elements. But to close, we wanted to pray a prayer of affirmation from the words and the and the writings of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And um, so I, I will. I'm you know I'll lead the prayer and then we'll and then we'll go to a close. Does that sound good? Okay. So we'll uh, put the prayer up on the screen. Join me. Um, I would love it if you're in the theater here. If you would stand with me again as though we are singing and praying together, and we're going to pray these aloud together, sort of like a, a prayer of, rather than confession, a prayer of affirmation. I refuse to believe that we are unable to influence the events which surround us, I refuse to believe that we are so bound to racism and war that peace and fellowship are not possible. I believe there is an urgent need for people to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to violence and oppression. I believe that we need to discover a way to live together in peace, a way which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation, The foundation of this way is love. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. I believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. I believe that what self-centered people have torn down other-centered people can build up. By the goodness of God at work within people, I believe that brokenness can be healed, and the lion and the lamb shall lie down together, and everyone sit under their own vine and fig tree, and none shall be afraid. Amen.